Please turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 19 will be the subject of our reading and my preaching this morning. Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through verse 19. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, When he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But he will not say, will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves We have done only that which we ought to have done. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go, your faith has made you well. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, your word fascinates us. It is an extraordinary account of God and of Christ and of your extraordinary grace. And we pray that you would help us to marvel, to take your words to heart, to think deeply and reason and mull over them, to not be willing that our thoughts should only be thoughtless, uh, that our minds should be thoughtless, that we should... Uh, inebriate ourselves with the television, but rather that we should in some way think upon the things of God. Help us, therefore, to do that this very morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, I I worked in a a very um, high-end banquet hall, and it was a banquet hall slash restaurant, and we were allowed specific times of, of breaks when we were allowed to eat a meal, to sit down, to drink something, and to eat a meal. Those times were after we had done all of our work, all of the people were, were, were taken care of, and in fact there was nothing left for us to do. When our work was completed, then we were permitted to eat. Well, Jesus has a particular scenario where there is a... There is an individual who owns a certain amount of land, who has a farm, who has animals, who has fields, and he has a limited number of folk who work for him, most likely only one servant. This word here is bond servant, bond servant. And so this individual is indebted to this man that works for this individual. He has, in fact, taken up the, uh, the calling to serve as this person's bond servant. 
is indentured to this individual, and he doesn't have, uh, the farmer does not have multiple servants, but he, he seems to only have one servant. And so they've been out in the field, they have been uh, working the fields, uh, feeding the animals, and they come in from the fields, and the, uh, the, the owner of the land, the farmer, simply says, uh, prepare my supper. Now, you and I might have a grave difficulty with an understanding of of what Jesus is calling for. We are from the Western world. We have certain proclivities and expectations about our employers. We want recognition. I want once in a while to receive commendation. I want want to be recognized. I, I want others to see the good work that I'm doing. Others can work and will work, and I think that my obligation to my employer is simply to do my job. But the moment I do anything that is in excess of what I am contractually obligated to, even 30 seconds staying longer at my employer, I need to be recognized. We have that mindset here in the Western world, and when the job doesn't work out to our expectations, we're ready to move on to another one. To another one. It's kind of like our approaches to churches. When a church doesn't meet my felt needs and doesn't make me feel what I think I need to feel, I'm moving on. We do that with our jobs, too. I remember many years ago, I was complaining to my father because I was hired. And when I was hired, I was told I would only work maybe 45 hours. And and if there was an excessive week, I would work about 50. Well, Before long, I was working 70, 75 hours per week on on a regular basis as a salaried person. So you're talking about almost a double work week, 35 hours beyond what I was contractually obligated for. But it was my job and it was what I had to do. But I was complaining and I was concerned. I went to my father and I said, you know, I'm really frustrated. I'm working a tremendous amount of hours. A lot is being added on to me. I can't continue here. And he said, you know, this is one of your first really good jobs. He said, my, my, my advice to you is to, to be quiet and to do your work. And I, I think that was good advice at the time. Be quiet, do your work, and work yourself into the position where you are, not, uh, you are able to uh, do a little bit less, uh, within reason anyway, Well, I worked in that job, and it was a good job for many years, and there were other benefits that accrued to me, but in truth, it was hard to do that. But there was a sense of duty uh, and of expectation from my workplace that my hard work contributed in some way to the ultimate success of the company I worked for. And and one would think that is fundamentally what we as employees do owe to our companies for which we work. But the idea of duty and the idea of working so as to glorify God, even in our conduct, in our workplace, it seems to be lost sometimes amongst even Christians. But there are ethics for Christians, even as it relates to work, that we are to treat others in a gracious and godly way, that we are not to be grumbling all the time. The word of God commands us to, to not do all, th- to, to do all things without grumbling. There's a great deal that the Word of God says about work and about working with others, about expectations of what we think that we are owed. Perhaps that's a subject for another day, but the fact is, here is 
at least as we consider our place before God and our duties that we owe unto God and, and the commandments that he has laid upon us and the obedience that he calls forth from us, all that the attitudes that we may have about our workplaces and who we work for and, 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 and the, the, the capabilities and the qualifications of those who are bosses over us and what we think about them, that's not in any way to encroach into our, our relationship to obedience toward God. This passage is a corrective to presumptions that we make and the sense of entitlement that our world so encourages in the workplace, but here within the church and in our relationship to God should have no place. And here's, here's the, the simple statement from the word of God, a, a simple summary. God owes you nothing. God owes me nothing. And more than that, you and I are entitled to nothing before God except to receive his judgment for our sins. Because we are sinners. We may not be as wicked as we could be, but we are sinners. And one day soon, sooner for many of us and soon later for some of us, but we don't know our times. We have no idea when the Lord will call us up yonder, as it were. But we will stand before a righteous God and he will demand of us righteousness. And according to this passage, as we'll delve into in a moment, even when we have done all that we are obligated to do, we have only done our duty. That's it. We can never outdo what God has commanded us to do. So let's examine this passage. We've been looking at it. That's all by way of introduction. But we've asked a question last week. Well, what, what will my what will the Christian life be like? And what, what does it mean to live as a Christian in the world and to interrelate with other people? And what will I face? What will what will my life involve as I seek to to live a godly life? How am I supposed to relate to my fellow believers in the gathered assembly of the church? And what will help me as I relate to my fellow Christians? Well, we answer those questions in a number of ways in verses 1 through 6. And rather than go over the same things that we did last week, I'll just simply say very quickly, we'll encounter stumbling blocks even amongst ourselves as believers and and that we will need to rebuke sin and we will need to be willing to accept rebuke for sin and we will need to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ even if they come to us multiple times over the same issue. We are obligated, if they truly and genuinely repent and are genuinely sorrowful for their sins, even if it is repeated, we are obligated to forgive. Well, those are all very good. Those are helpful as to how we are to live with one another. But let me ask a further question. How, how am I to relate to my God? As I think about living the Christian life, how am I to relate to God? What is my relationship with God look like? And, 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 and what am I to do for him? And how will he let me know that he appreciates what I do for him? 
How do I interact with God? If I need faith and a steady supply of God's grace and power to watch carefully over myself and and in order to rebuke sin and my brothers and forgive them when they repent, and that repeatedly, what do I need in my interactions with God? There are two things, I think, that are found in this text. One is humility, and the second is thankfulness. The first is humility, the second is thankfulness. Let's examine humility Jesus has this scenario whereby this, this, this man who is a farmer, who, who has a worker that works for him, he comes in from the field at the end of the day, and he says, come and sit. He doesn't say, come and sit down to eat. And Jesus is sharing this with his disciples in a very agrarian society where there were uh, people. And, and I think when we approach Scripture, we have to see the, the the subject of bond service and of slavery in a very different light than perhaps what we have experienced in our present world and seen even in recent times. And to be honest, there are more people enslaved today than there have been at any other point in the world's history. And most of those people who are enslaved today are Christians. whether that's in North Korea or that's out in the gulags of China or in any portion or part of the continent of Africa or even Christian men and women, even non-Christian men and women, boys and girls, even here in the United States. There are very few news cycles in the course of a year where we don't hear some incredible statement or, or some incredible indictment against some individual who has been enslaving persons in his own home or her own home or people who are working in their homes who are from a foreign country who don't speak English and who have been in some way indentured into servitude and this insults our sensitivities but in Jesus day Jesus is not in any way commending or, 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 or praising the, the institution of slavery at all. He is simply in recognition of, of the current state within Israel, and according to the law of God, those who are deeply poor could indenture themselves in, in, in service to those who would treat them well, they would work for them, and they would stay under their protection. Well... In that time also, there was warfare, and in warfare, men and women, boys and girls were enslaved by those who conquered them. The reality was that there was slavery. There was a a bond service, and Jesus, in recognition of of, of the the ordinary uh, institutions of that day, is illustrating a principle for us here, and it's an important principle. Human approaches to work and labor, even and, and, and worldly approaches to, to, to labor and to work, seep into Christian obedience to such an extent that there's a certain sense of pride that when we do something for God, when we obey the Lord, even imperfectly, even in the slightest possible way, we feel we've done something well. We've done something good. And we calculate ordinarily on one side of the great ledger of things we have done for God and things we have neglected to do for God or things we have done in contradiction to what God prohibits or or forbids us from doing. 
we, we deeply underestimate those things that are on the negative side of the ledger, things we have failed to do, things we have done in contradiction to God's law and against the Lord. And here on this side, we lift up, we exalt all that we think we have done for God. We underestimate our disobedience and we highly overestimate the things that we have done well. And we calculate and we expect recognition when we do well. And so when we go out and we do something and, and someone yells at us or gives us a hard time and we, we back off, we take a deep breath and we respond in a gracious way rather than angrily. We think, I've done well, the Lord must be pleased with me. Surely God is pleased with my conduct and my behavior. And that may be true. Certainly God takes pleasure in his people and our obedience. But but what we do is we put behind that an even deeper expectation that now God owes me in some way that recognition that I deserve. In some way God is obligated to bless me now. If I do well, God will bless And we often make those calculations because when we fall into a sin pattern, when we are struggling in our obedience unto God and we experience the the deprivation of soul that reminds us, oh, how I need the Lord and we return to God, we think the only way that we can return to God is to first do some good things for Him. Then He'll open wide the door. You see, we have these faulty calculations A faulty understanding about obedience and what it means and what it is. When we obey, we have an attitude that prevails afterward that God will bless us and do good things for us. Life will be a little easier. If I'm doing good things and I'm obeying the Lord, I I deserve a little easier life. Trouble will be kept at bay. Things will go well. The truck will not need to be repaired. The, The house, the heat will work. And I'll have just enough money to pay the bills. Well... That may not be God's plan, and it's not retributive, it's not punishment. God intends that we would be disciplined for our good. God intends that suffering would teach us of our need for him. God would wean us from this world, teach us the hidden evils of our own soul, show us our sins and, and, and enable us to be sanctified and growing in his grace. But our calculation is, I don't want nor do I need any of that. What I want to do is do good things for God and receive his blessing. That's that's what I want. That's what I expect. And that's frankly what many on on, on television on Sunday mornings are teaching the church. If you do good, God will bless you. And that's true. But that blessing may not be according to what you and I have an expectation of. What they mean when they say that is... If you do good things and you obey the Lord, God will bless you with monetarily with good health and length of days. Well, God has never promised any of that to his people. He has promised his blessing. But he has never promised that you would be rich and wealthy and healthy. Never. He has promised his blessing. What we need is a recalculation of what God's blessing is. Christ is saying in this passage, when you have done all, when you have done all that is your duty, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say this, 
We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. So when in the midst of prayer, when we are recounting before the Lord our delight in Him, and we are, we are examining our life and bringing our sins to God, and even at the end of the day, we have to say something to the extent, Lord, I, I want to serve you more faithfully. Help me to serve you. Lord, I, I'm thankful for your presence. And after getting done with prayer, and, and then to say, Lord, even the good that I have done, Lord, I have only done my duty. I am your bondservant. There's a connection to be made scripturally between obedience and blessing, and I think that's sometimes where people get a a misunderstanding. In Deuteronomy 28, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. Well, first of all, God was saying that to Old Testament Israel under the covenant of Moses, and he was saying, if you obey me according to my law, I'll bless you as a nation. I'll bless you corporately. I'll bless you as a body. It's not that some didn't experience wombs that would not produce children. It's not that some didn't experience suffering or illness or death. They did. But as a nation, they were blessed. And you and I stand in a very different relationship to God than Old Testament Israel did. They they dwelt before the Lord according to His grace and mercy. Yes, in the same way as we are. They were the church, and so do we corporately as a church. And, and corporately as a body, if we, if we obey the Lord and we continue to abide in the Lord, yes, the Lord will bless His people. We can, we can have a healthy expectation of His blessing. And yet, as it applies to us particularly as individuals, we may experience God's blessing in a different way. His blessing may be that he intends to draw us nearer into his presence. His blessing may be that he intends to wean us from this world. His blessing may be that through deprivation, through suffering, we might come to more deeply identify with those in this world who do suffer like us. We might grow in fellowship. We might be encouraged uh, in our encouragement with one another. We might grow more deeply in love with Jesus Christ as we grow more disenfranchised with and less in love with this world. God's manifold promises of blessings are always there before his people motivating us toward obedience. But there's a misunderstanding, and, and that's what Jesus is trying to to correct here in this passage with the Pharisees of his day. They believed that in light of God's word, in light of those promises, they had developed an expectation that in some way, because of their standing corporately as a people, God owed them. Therefore, they had an expectation of God's blessing and a blessing that fit perfectly with what they themselves believed to be a blessing. 
In other words, they, they had reached the point where because of their identity as Jewish persons, God therefore owed them blessing. And the blessing they most wanted from God was according to their own dictates. It's like you and I saying, well, because I go to grace, Presbyterian church, God will be gracious to me because I identify in this corporate body and and in fact, God will bless me, but God will bless me in the ways that I expect. I'll, I'll have an increase in my job and, and in my income. I'll, I'll have long life and I'll be healthy. I will not be sick. In fact, I'll never get sick and my car will run without any, any issues. The water pump won't fail and it'll never make engine noise and, and, and I'll never have difficulty and the money will be there when it's needed and my wife will love me and admire me and uh, your, your husband will, 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 will never look at anyone else but you because you're, you're just his dream girl and your marriage will be nothing but just roses and, Blessing and joy and you get my point. I'm exaggerating. We misunderstand and we make assumptions when I obey. I'm being a good servant, like a puppy who deserves a good treat. And so uh, like puppies there before God, we we believe, you know, when we do the trick, when we do what he commands us to do, we, we deserve the treat. When we don't get the treat, we we get frustrated. Well, I'm not going to do anything for God because there's no, no blessing that will accrue to me from it. We get petty with the Lord, don't we? I do. When in the midst of struggle, all of a sudden struggles develop or some bad news is received, and I think, Lord, when am I going to catch a break? Because I, I, I'm doing good things. I'm serving you. Here I am. But where is your blessing? When I know that I'm blessed, but the blessing I'm looking for is what I want, ultimately. It's my own appetite fulfilled. When I obey the Lord, I deserve commendation, good treatment, recognition, blessing in the way that I expect. And yet this is not what's in the mind of God. I have a belief that my obedience obligates God in some way to me, specifically to my sovereign expectation and assumption of what will do me most good. Further, that when I disobey, God is going to withhold blessing from me. And yet, even when I do disobey, and and in fact, I don't obey perfectly God. I don't obey God perfectly every day anyway, but yet still God's blessing does find me. So in sum, my obedience and disobedience causes God's giving of grace and of blessing or prohibits the same. And and, and this is a faulty way of looking at these things. In John chapter 9, 2, it's just like what the disciples do there. Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents? You remember the man who was born blind came to Jesus, was brought to Jesus. The immediate question the disciples had was, well, who sinned? In other words, this man received this this blinding of his eyes according to or as a deserved treatment. And so he received this because he deserved it. And this is the calculation of the human mind that we make on on both sides of the equation. Life gets hard because I deserve it and I've earned it. Life is good and, and I receive blessing because I've earned it and I deserve it. We need a correction in this, and the simple correction is this, that Jesus is saying, when you obey God, you're receiving 
you, you are doing only what is your duty. So what you need is humility before God. What I need is humility before God. I've only done what, what, what I'm obligated to before God to do. In fact, nothing will, will ever do for God what is beyond what, what God has commanded. I'm never going to out, out, outdo God. I can never outdo what God has commanded. All that we've ever done was first commanded. And it's glorious in that God, when he commands, he also gives and grants the gifts necessary to accomplish what he is commanded to do. So even the doing of what God commands me to do is by grace. And really, I think this whole subject speaks to our inability to make up for our sins. The idea of works of super arrogation or of doing something, going above and beyond, doing an extraordinary act of mercy or of grace in some way initiates the pleasure of God and initiates a deeper pouring out of grace is a spurious idea from hell. It is not found anywhere in Scripture. Here is Jesus, and he says, look, when you've done all that you do, all you can say ultimately is, I have done only my duty. I cannot outdo God. And in fact, I can never do any works that could in any way ever make up for my sin. I could never atone for sin. I could never uh, deserve grace by my works. This is really what Jesus is saying here in verses 7 through 10. It destroys every man-made retributive system of expectation from God and attempts to manipulate his grace. You cannot, by your obedience, manipulate God's grace. Many other passages describe our sonship, our friendship with God. John chapter 15 comes to mind when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, You are no longer slaves. You are my friends. What an extraordinary statement. Scripture speaks and, and tells us that we are children of God, members of the family and household of God. What is true? Are we slaves or are we servants? Are, 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 are we sons? Are we friends? Are, are we children? Are, are, are we firstborn? Are, 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 we, are, are we sons of the living God who have a right to an inheritance through Christ? But yes, we are all those things. We are not any one less than the other. We are all those things. We are friends of God and of Christ. We are sons of God. We are children of the household of God. And we are slaves and bond servants unto God. And all of these things that are true and glorious can, be, can, become, it can lead to spiritual pride. And that's what's happened with the Pharisees. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples and saying, look, you're going to do extraordinary things for me. And, and didn't they? They cast out demons. They, 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 they healed with their touch. They had an extraordinary faith. They stood with the Lord, even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Although they fled, they stayed for a long period of time with him under the threat of death. Some of them went even to the point into the courtyard there with him, Peter and John. When he was being questioned, they ran great risk. They did. 
They went and they ran to the tomb. They were with the Lord at the last. They served the Lord. Many of them died in harsh deaths. But, but we would say of them, and Jesus is telling them right now, here, even when you have done all that you will do, you have merely done your duty. You are a bondservant of the Lord. God is to be praised and not man. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Martin Luther had a wonderful statement about this passage. Even though we are in faith, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, after all, I have preached so long and lived so well and done so much. Surely he will take this into account. But when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home and remember to appeal from justice to grace. I myself have been preaching grace for almost 20 years and still I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal with so with God that I may contribute something so that he will have to give his grace in exchange for my holiness. Still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace if this is what I should and must do. The second thing we see in this passage is thankfulness. Here are these ten individuals. They are all ill with leprosy. Now, leprosy is a very general statement. It's a very general uh, name given for serious skin diseases. It it, It has often been ridiculed that the Bible says so much about leprosy in the time of Christ, and yet Many have said, well, there was no such thing during that time. It was not as prevalent as, uh, as, as, as it was uh, today, and therefore it really must, must not have been that prevalent. And surely there, was, there, were, there were not all these healings of leprous people. And yet recent discovery, we have found massive leprous colonies, people suffering with skin diseases. We have found bedclothes, we have found clothing and, 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 and bodies malformed by the very condition of leprosy. It's, I always love how archaeology affirms the truthfulness of God's word. We don't have to have it, but it's wonderful when it's received. They've, beaten, they've been recently finding, um, many have questioned the, 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 the range of the kingdom of David, and they've been finding extraordinary uh, things in biblical archaeology in the last two years that uh, are attributed to the Davidic kingdom. It's it's extraordinary what God is revealing. But here are these ten men, and they have leprosy, and they know that there is mercy with Christ, and that Christ can heal. And so, from a distance, according to the law, they were not in, they were not allowed to come close. From a distance, they cried out, "Master, have mercy on us!" And Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And Jesus tells them, which is according to the law, all of you go and show yourself to the priest. They were to do this because they were considered unclean until such time as they were healed. And then there would have to be an eight day progression of time over which their bodies were free of that disease. So they were to progress to the priest. He would examine them. They would go eight days. They would be reexamined and rewelcomed to the community now as clean. Well, they all go. They all go hurriedly off, and they're all healed as they go. But only one turns around, and he's a Samaritan. And we know that Jews did not like this mixed race. They were cousins of Jews. They were part Jew and part non-Jewish. They hated them for that. There was a disdain for their lack of purity. 
And yet one man demonstrates his saving understanding of who Jesus Christ was as he turned around, cried out, fell on his face, and wept around Jesus' ankles in thanksgiving to him. Only one man fell at Jesus' feet and gave him thanks. And Jesus points out that discrepancy of the praise. And he says, your faith has made you well. Now, right now, we, because of humanity, we sinful humanity, we typically take such phrases and say, well, we'll do the same thing that we've just been doing in verses 7 through 10. My faith necessitates God's healing. My faith is the grounds upon which and the causal force for why God saves me. This is wrong. Let's learn the lessons of verses 7 through 10. And let's be careful that we don't commit the same sin by the time we reach verse 19. Jesus says literally, your faith has saved you. That's the word sozo. It's, it's, it's a reference to the word of salvation. And it's very much like Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. He shall save his people from their sins. He shall save. Or Acts 2.21. And it shall come to pass that whomsoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Jesus is not saying that your faith is causal for your salvation. He's saying your faith is the instrument by which you've received this salvation. I've saved you. And you've given me thanks. Your faith is the instrument by which you've come to this understanding. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Faith is, lest anyone should boast. Is, is your life this morning characterized by thanksgiving? Do you give thanks to God? Do you regularly give thanks to God? Do you approach the Lord with heartfelt thanks? Lord, thank you for, for leading this person into my life. Lord, thank you for arresting me in that moment and not letting me sin like I have countless other times. Lord, thank you for keeping my thoughts pure today. Lord, thank you for giving me the love of this person with whom I am in relationship. Lord, thank you for my children. Lord, thank you for my church. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who may irritate me from time to time or even hurt my feelings on occasion, but who love me and whom I love. I'm not saying that against you. I'm saying, speaking in general. All of us. Is your life characterized by thanksgiving? Don't we need a little bit more often to do just like this man, to fall on our face at home? And I do hope that when you pray, sometimes you do you do get down on your knees and pray and, 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 and get on your get get down and pray before the Lord and in a posture of kneeling before God, for he is great and he is grand and he is glorious. And it, and it does something to our pride when we fall on our knees before the Lord and pray. I, I encourage you to do it. It will lead you to greater humility before God and it will cause your hearts to ascend in greater thanksgiving to God. We should be praising and giving thanks to God. We should let this man's example shout to us. We should learn to stop and give thanks in a moment when we are receiving God's blessing and of his grace. 
All too often the Lord answers our prayers in the midst of our difficult days. We say, Lord, please help me. And the Lord helps us and we go on. And we forget to give thanks. But we need to be just as fervent in saying in that moment before we do anything, Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you. Keep short accounts with God. When when you're crying out for help and he helps you, give thanks. Give it immediately. Give it fervently. Give it joyously. We think nothing of stopping and saying, Lord, help me while we're in great need. But to stop and say, Lord, I want nothing more than to say thank you. Thank you. I am, I am your bondservant. I deserve nothing. But you've given me everything. There's something also extraordinarily in conclusion. One more thing here. You know, you remember back in Luke chapter 12, lest you and I get offended by this uh, idea that Jesus says, you know, as, as bondservants of the Lord, and here is this example of a man who is a farmer who has come home, and he and his servant have been working out in the fields, and he says, all right, now gird yourself, cleanse yourself, get, get, get clean enough to, to come and bring me my supper. Remembering that this man is receiving wages for doing that, that this is his calling, his job. Maybe we're offended by such an example, but, you know, the Lord himself has given us a better example. In Luke chapter 12, verse 35, it says, Be ready, be dressed and ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes... And, of course, we know who the bridegroom is. That's Jesus. When he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them, his servants. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward dawn. Daybreak. And this is foreshadowed, uh, this Luke 12 account, of what will take place in Luke chapter 22. And what takes place there? Jesus brings in his men, his disciples, and he washes their feet. Peter says, you won't wash my feet, Lord. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no entrance into my kingdom. You're not worthy of me. And Peter appropriately responds, Wash my feet and wash my entire body. You don't have a God and a Savior who will demand at the end of a hard day's work that you come in and serve. He simply places an entire call upon the the entirety of your life and says, let every moment, every day, everything, every thought, bring it all captive to this reality You as an individual are called in service to me. God wants all of it. But then he doesn't leave it there, but rather he sends forth his son to take on the the, the penalty of our sin and to give himself in atonement for our sin that if we believe in him, we will have life, new life in Christ and we will be saved from all our sins. We have a God who calls for extraordinary service in his name to come and live unto God, to die unto ourselves. But then he goes far beyond anything we could ever do and he gives himself. 
in penalty for sin, against his wrath and full satisfaction of his wrath, Jesus has given himself as our Savior. And he came not to, not, not to be served, but to serve. And he has served us well, has he not? Can we do anything less than serving him, loving, in, loving him, and delighting in him all the days of our lives? May God help us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we pray that you would help us to delight in serving our God. Oh, Lord, you are not some capricious Lord. You are not some capricious person who would have us serve you without benefit or blessing. You are a God who has blessed us beyond measure. You have dealt with us in such a way that your grace has been poured out upon our heads. We have a Savior who has given himself for us. Jesus constantly serves and constantly undergirds us and enables and helps us. And even though you lay upon us that we are to serve you and we are to obey you and we are to live our lives to your glory, which is not so great a burden as we sometimes make it out to be. Nevertheless, you, in accompaniment with that, give us of his grace and you pour out your power into us and you enable our faith and your Holy Spirit dwells within us, animates us to do your will, and you work in us all that is pleasing in your sight. It's an extraordinary thing, Lord. So we ask this morning, make us more grateful. Make us more thankful. Make us to be a people who are regularly saying to our God, Lord, thank you. Lord, help us to abound in thanksgiving and thus to obey the Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.